Hello, I'm your host, Leonard Duncan. Welcome to a new episode of ATV Talk and Motorsports Podcast. Please join us every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We bring you interviews with industry professionals, live events, live news about the motorsports industry in every episode. Enjoy the show. Whether we are out riding with our friends and family or racing in extreme environments, we all need good tires. That's why I recommend GBC Power Sports Tires, a division of Greenball Corp. Their products, which include XC Master, Mini Master, and Groundbuster 3, are what leading professionals in the ATV UTV industry are using. You can get your tires at greenballtires.com or find them on Instagram as GBC Tires for further inquiries. Corey Witherall, welcome to ATV Talk. Hey, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Uh, not too bad. Just hanging in there. Hey, I want to thank you so much for giving us some of your valuable time. I know that uh, you're uh, uh, as busy as the rest of us and and talking about ATVs. It's been, you know, 30 years, bud. It's been a long time. A long time, yeah, for sure. You know, it's uh, it's a good sport. I've always loved ATVs or pretty much anything on dirt. You know, I have, I have a long racing career, my whole background, but it's something about dirt. I mean... <laughs> You can talk to any 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 race car drivers, and if they ever experienced racing motocross or off road cars, it's just something about that sport that just lives within us. It never goes away, does it? No, no, that's for sure. I want to go. I want to go back in in time. I got some information from you, but I I'd, I'd really like to hear you tell that is. How did this all come about for you with ATVs? How did I get involved with the sport? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, just, I mean, where did your ATV love or, or, or ATV experience start? It started, so I've always been like a race fan. And I always liked racing. And um, I used to watch like uh, IndyCar races on TV as a kid. And watch it with, uh, I guess, like my dad, or just it was on TV. It's something that's always interested me. Um, my parents, you know, my dad is an Ivy Leaguer. He's a you know executive CEO type person. My mom, you know, worked with him. So we, I did not grow up in a in a racing family or you know any, any sort of that type of situation. But I always loved dirt bikes. I always you know seeing them on TV or just in the magazines. And when we were, oh, on vacation, when I was like uh, nine years old, ten years old, we were up in Lake Arrowhead, and my parents had a, had a place up there, and we were go down to the to the golf course there. My parents was a member at the Lake Arrowhead Country Club, and there was another club member there who was a realtor, and my parents were friends with them. But this guy also had a little side job renting ATVs, which I think was called like Lake Arrowhead Fun Company or Fun Co. And basically my parents took all my brothers and sisters and I down there and just kind of thought it would be a fun thing for us. And it just hooked me right there. It was something I've always wanted to do. It was my first time riding any sort of dirt bike or ATV. And 
it just kind of went the interest it got it just exploded from there <laughs> you know every time we would go to lake arrowhead i think we'd go like three times during the summer i had always make sure my parents okay we got to rent them again and then the next year we got to rent them we got to rent them and then finally when i was 13 my parents bought an atv for me to have and then made a racetrack in my front yard <laughs> rode up and down the street and everything and then we had a family friend that used to ride dirt bikes so he would take me out riding sometimes too and i just got the love for it and always wanted to race and you know back then they had what three and four wheel action magazine and dirt wheels and the whatever publications i forgot the atv sport was going let me that's a little later but but uh but i would always read those take them to school and have them in class and that pretty much what started the whole thing I and mean, i've always wanted to race that's so awesome and how did how did you end up how did you end up racing uh racing came in two parts one is obvious it's all it's what i've always wanted to do like i said from from being a young kid looking at the magazines and, and riding the four-wheelers up in lake arrowhead and just you know wanting to compete and i think that part just came from watching it on tv or other types of racing on tv and just wanted to to race I think probably I got a little bit involved in it because I'm the youngest of a big family <laughs> and my parents kind of bribed me in a sense. They kind of said, hey, as long as you go to school, you do well and you don't have to get straight A's, but you have to do, do great in school and stay out of trouble and, you know, and be smart and everything. You make the right decisions, we'll help you and get you involved with racing. So, I mean, I figured hey, that's a good deal and everything, you know, <laughs> but that was, what, I think it was in eighth grade at that time or something like that. And so that was my kind of like talk with my parents in the vomit. And then sure enough, they ended up getting me a, a Suzuki 250 and I started racing in 87. I think, yeah, the beginning of the 87 year. Uh, and, uh, just out here locals in um, uh, Gardena, California at Ascot Park. Because they had like Friday night motocross every every week. You've seen a lot of changes then in the local area because you almost there's there's no places to ride anymore. Yeah, there's you know, there, there's a lot of places that shut down even before I started because a lot of people are like, dude, have you ever been out to Indian Dunes or was it? Saddleback or something like that. I'm like, no. I was like, I think that closed down like right when I started riding and everything. You know, I used to go up riding in Templin, which is like right before Gorman going up the five right there. They shut that down shortly after that. And then just a lot of a lot of the tracks and everything, you know. Luckily I was around to race at uh, Carlsbad. That was one of my favorite tracks. It was an awesome place, wasn't it? Yeah, no, it was it was a cool place to go race, and they used to watch the motocross races on. I think it was like Diamond Peak Sports back in the day, and everything. And uh, it was always a a fun, cool, cool venue to watch. And then my first time going there, I was just like, "This is awesome!" <laughs> Actually, I think I got a, I got a picture on on my Instagram. I think of, of me at Carlsbad 
of that year in '87 in a in a the, the newspaper um, ATV Sports, I think what it was. It was like a local newspaper or, or like a newspaper magazine that came out every week or something. Or San stuff. Diego Off Roader. What's that? Was it the San Diego Off Roader? No, it called it was called uh, ATV News. That's what it was. Okay. It was a it was a, just like a newspaper print that came out once a uh, once um was it no I'm sorry not ATV News uh, Cycle News. Right there you go. Cycle News what it's called, but they always had like ATVs in there because they were always from all the local tracks from Carlsbad to Ascot to uh, I don't know what LA County Raceway and all up and down California. Wow. You spent uh, you spent some time racing Mickey's. Was it? Did you do the Golden State Series as well? I ran a couple of the Golden State races um, when they were when they were uh, more in the local area. I guess just in Southern California. I didn't go pro until I was like eighteen, seventeen. So I was like uh, what eighty nine. 89 kind of did a little ball, and then 90 was that's when I turned went to go run pro full time and everything. But I did a couple Mickey Thompson races as an amateur or running the intermediate class in 88, and then I ran in 89 and, and 90. But 88 only did like think two, I think they did like the Rose Bowl and the Coliseum. And then because I was still in high school, so I couldn't travel to like the far away ones or you know, breaking into it, and my parents were kind of breaking into it as well, you know, with the traveling and school. But um, I ran Mickey's in uh, in 89, and in 90, I was going to do run all the nationals in, in, uh, in Mickey's, but was the first national in Gainesville, Florida, I believe. And uh, it was a TT race, and got nailed from the back with somebody and we're flying over the bars and broke the two forearm bones in my in my arm and everything and that kind of ended my ATV career. Oh really? Yeah. Because the doctor said, you know, that that injury, you know, you got two plates, 14 screws in your arms, and if you fall and break it again, you know, it'll pretty much shatter the bones and you may not be lucky to put it back together because it'd be a bunch of little pieces. Wow. So an injury takes you out of ATV racing. Did that instantly start taking you away from ATVs in general? No, not really. Um, it ended me competing in, in, um, in racing or whatever, you know, professional with, with ATVs, but it actually opened the door for me to go race cars. Because at the same time, my parents are like, you know, you love racing. You're very good at it. And if you want to race a, a, like a stadium off-road car in the Mickey Thompson series, you know, we'll, we can transition to that and, and find people and, and work with other teams and everything and, and move into that, that next level. So that was my transition into a, a Super 1600 or a Stadium 1600 in the Mickey Thompson series. Um, but the uh, ATVs, I was still around them and I still kept a lot of my bikes at that time for a few years and just would go out to like Glamis for Thanksgiving and just, you know, Gizmo Beach 
to have fun and everything. You know, couple, couple of my, I, I grew up in Pacific Palisades, and that's the last little town where Sunset Boulevard hits Pacific Coast Highway, just like north of Santa Monica between Malibu. So I've taken them out <laughs> in the middle of the night down Sunset Boulevard or up in the fire trails. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Back, back in the 80s, when you're, when you're able to do that without having to worry about being arrested or thrown in jail and everything impounded and stuff like that when you were able to get away with things <laughs> yeah now they would have locked you in jail and thrown away the key yeah <laughs> but maybe before covid but not the COVID. maybe they don't care but <laughs> well yeah after covid they don't care but yeah that's that is a congested area now but i'm sure when you were younger that was probably an awesome place to grow up it's still i would say it's still the best area to grow up and everything i mean it has changed a little bit I mean, Santa Monica and, and the whole northern, you know, Brentwood, Santa Monica, north, north of Montana, as we call it, has changed. You can't ride an ATV down the streets there today. <laughs> You'll have cops there real quick. <laughs> but, but yeah, no, it's 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 nice. I mean, I remember when there were, there's the Palisades Highlands, they were developing it, the very top. They're, the Highlands were built in the 70s, early 80s, and then the 90s, they were building the higher ends of it. And so when they build up in the in the hills, you know, everything's like graded like, like tears. So we would ride our bikes all the way up there and everything and have like big flying jumps and you know fake parasols jumping down and everything like the Coliseum and <laughs> until until we see the helicopter start flying over. Then <laughs> we go, all right, you gotta go. <laughs> then you then you'd scatter. Yeah, then we all scatter and everything and meet back there at my house. But the good thing about that though because we all knew the neighborhood. We all know the routes. I mean, one night I took the beach all the way back. I figured they can't chase me on the sand. <laughs> so I, I took the beach all the way back and then ran up the canyon to my, to my parents' house and um, side of my backyard and I could see the helicopters and I could hear all of my friends on my other bikes, you know, trying to find their way back. You know, all you hear, all you hear is like, like, like everyone's just like running. <laughs> <laughs> but the best part though because i had so many of them um when we got back to my house we put them behind my parents garage and they're like in behind where you can't even see them but i still had two bikes in the garage but they were taken apart with the engine out so after everybody came back you know they all knew i had atvs and dirt bikes there and everything so whenever oh my my three other friends showed up after my house and everything, we were just inside the, the house, just kicking back, watching TV, playing pool. Next thing you know, the cops are knocking on the door. <laughs> and they started questioning me, like, hey, you guys been out on ATVs? You know, we've been looking for for a bunch of guys out there. We're like, no. You can look, they're right here in the garage. <laughs> Open up the garage, and there's there's the two that were just stripped out with the with the engines out there. They're like, see, we we haven't been out. Meanwhile, behind the corner, they're just sitting there, you know, creeping and crackling and <laughs> cooling down. <laughs> oh man, what what it was what we could get away with in the '80s that you just can't do now. Yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe more in the rural areas you can do that, but living in like the LA area or the West Side of Los Angeles, no, <laughs> you can't get away with that anymore. I, I, you know, I still live in the same little town that I grew up in Southern California, just outside of San Diego. And, you know, 
we used to be able to ride basically in the front yard and it was a big yard, you know, and you could go pretty much do just about anything you wanted with no problems. And the houses just kept building grump coming in and closing in and closing in and have changed the whole environment. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's one thing. So, so like, like I, you know, recently I've been getting these quads and we've got a couple of 250 yards now, quite a few of them actually. And one of them I bought from a guy that lives, oh, I forgot the name of the town, but it's like right there, I guess the main road down to El Mirage. <laughs> I haven't been since probably the 90s, maybe the end of the late 80s or something. So I go down there and pick it up and I'm like, dude, is El Mirage like right here? He's like, yeah, it's just like half a mile down. You can ride down here and then enter right there. I'm like, where did all these houses come from? Because <laughs> there's houses built all around the dry lake bed. I'm like, this is crazy. I was like, this is like barren, empty land, no one around other than, I guess, Victorville. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, but it's all like scattered houses, like closing in to, to Palmdale. It's unbelievable. You know, Hesperia, Victorville, Victorville, who would have ever thought that they would have built houses up there? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I I recently, or just, yeah, I guess in the last year or so, I went out to see Clark over at, at Nolan and everything and cutting through the 15 to his shop over there in this area. I'm like, whoa, where are all these houses come from? <laughs> come from? You know, just beating them back. So they've always been the ones by the 15, by the freeway. Right. But deep in there, I'm like, I've never even seen these back here before. <laughs> we used to go riding right, right all around those other areas. You used to go be able to just off the 395 up there. You used to be able to ride all over that. And now it's all houses or they've got it so that you might be able to ride, but you're not going to ride very far before you run into a neighborhood. Yeah. yeah. And then I saw what was, I think, yeah, during the summer, I cut across from Victorville or Adelanda area up to 395. It was 395. It went. It went to like Mojave and then over to like Bakersfield to Tachapi area and driving to the desert there. And you could see all like the infrastructure being laid in there and everything for like future use or something. Cause you can see like big water pipes coming out of the ground in the middle of the desert, nowhere. Like, like it's going to be like a future pump station or something. And the roads are like double wide and everything on both directions at the big center deal of like, wow. It looks like they were planning like mass development at some point or something. Maybe, maybe, maybe not in the rest of my lifetime, but like maybe 50 years from now or a hundred years from now, but you can see like all the grading in the roads and everything. Well, just in the, you know, 50 years living where I live, it's totally changed. I mean, I graduated high school in at El Capitan and, and they still had, hitching posts to tie your horse up. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's crazy. So that's just gonna, you know, all those riding areas, all those cool places like like where I used to go to out there. Okay, at least uh, I don't I don't hear you. Sorry about that. Ah. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, 
Yeah, but all, all those riding areas, you know, they're all disappearing. I mean, the places I used to ride, they, they're no longer. I mean, I guess, I don't know where we can go out the desert. Yeah, you Maybe. pretty much are going to go to um, places in, like Ridgecrest, and, and you can ride out there still. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. that's, that's up the, that's up the 395 quite a ways. Yeah. Yeah. I guess Gorman's still, still open, but Gorman, I think is just a small little area you can ride. Yeah. And, and the restrictions are pretty heavy. Yeah. Spark arresters registration. I mean, within reason, uh, I believe that you should have all that stuff, but you're not going to burn down Glamis or Buttercup or any of these places. So why they have those restrictions there, I don't understand. Yeah. And, yeah. and registration is just a moneymaker. Yeah, that's for sure. So you raced the 1600 cars in Mickey's and in, in the, in the pace races. Yeah. I raced them in the, in the pace series when they ran that. Um, after Mickey's, um, during, but during Mickey's, yeah, that's when I pretty much started race, made that transition into cars or off-road cars and ran the, I ran both classes. I ran the stadium 1600. And then after a couple of years, I switched over to what was the ultra stock class, which was like, you know, the SUVs, like the Jeep Cherokees and Explorers that they ran. So I drove one of the Jeep Cherokees. Through like 93 and 94. Then Mickey's went away, I believe, in 95. Yep, three rounds in. Yeah, the Raptors, Seattle, or something. Yep. Then, like, but yeah, then, then the pace came around, and that was kind of cool. You know, it was a good deal to get back in the state, in the stadium car. And I traveled out to Montreal and did that race for like. 10 or 11 years from like 95 to 05. In, in, in Canada, in the 1600 car, correct? Yeah. Yeah, I ran out there pretty much every year, except for 9-11, I did run that year. How did you transition to asphalt? You know what? So, I like I said, when I was young, I always wanted to race IndyCar. You know, it's like almost every kid's passion or dream or something. But, you know, it, it was something that had interest me, and I always had interest for that. But the likeliness of that ever happening is, you know, every kid said they want to race IndyCar or soccer or whatever. But I went, like, the motocross, the ATV route, and everything and started racing that. But then once I got into racing the off-road cars and whatever in the stadium racing, Mickey Thompson's, that, do you remember Jerry Stansberry? Yes. From Mickey Thompson? Very much so. Remember, we can always do the Stansberry shuffle when you would sign us, line everybody up at the grade line, skipping backwards. So he, he, I think that, left Mickey's in 92, I think. It was 91 or 92. It was one of, I think it was 90, 92 was his last year working for them. And then he went on a, I guess just starting his own business called Stadium Competitions where he would like represent drivers or teams. 
And I was like his first client. We hired him to manage my team and, and my deal and everything. And because of that, he kind of got me wanting to develop my driving skills, I guess, a little bit, or just kind of expand out to other types of racing. And so he got me, I guess, set up to run the, the Jim Russell Racing School at Laguna Seca and run some of their, their like, their amateur pro-am series cars that they have and everything on to do, like, test days and lapping. It just more or less was to to learn other driving skills and other, you know, things that may adapt to the off-road car. Just, you know, the whole thinking process and, you know, it's, it's two different types of cars, but it, it was just kind of one of those things that he thought that would be a good, good learning tool to, to better your skills in, in racing in general. But because of that, that got me really, really interested in, into pavement racing you know, open wheel racing. And it just kind of went from there in a sense to where, where I was talking with my parents and a few people and it was kind of like, you know, I would like to try to do other types of payment racing. And at that time there was the Dodge Shelby Can-Am series. And the series I saw it before on TV and everything, and there were cool looking cars back then. And you know, I was like, that'd be kind of interesting just to see because I was sponsored by Goodyear and Goodyear down here in LA is up by where the, the Goodyear racing division was down by the Goodyear blimp. And it was managed by little Joe, who was his name, but Carol Shelby also had his office there where they had the Goodyear tires stored at. So I would always go down and pick a tires for the off-road car and see these cars and see Carol Shelby there sometimes. And I just kind of like, I want to race one of these cars. And that just kind of was my first introduction to that. And we just kind of did the research, found a team, found a car. I mean, I test drove one of the earlier known drivers, Mimo Gable. He's a very known, well-known sports car driver. And he was driving that series that time. And they were based out of Sonoma. And I went up there and tested their car a couple times and felt like this is something I wanted to make a transition to and change over. So, wow, that's so freaking cool, Carol yeah. Shelby. Yeah, so yeah, you no, know, he's he was a good guy, you know. He's you know, a lot, a lot of good stories there and everything. <laughs> and um, but uh, but yeah, so I ran that series for what? While I was running Mickey's, I was still I was running that series in '94 and '95. But then the game, same or same situation like other series, so things start to die out and you got to look for different directions. And when Mickey's went away, the Dodge Shelby series in 95 was kind of like slowing down. And actually I think that was, I think Dodge pulled out in 95 for that series. So what was next, you know, it was kind of up in the air and everything. And then that's when I jumped into uh same thing, you know, looked around and talked with some teams and, got in to test the US F2000 car and then made that transition. And, you know, I think we were at Crandon in 95 and Kevin Singleton, he uh, ran smart, smart Performance, which he built the Toyota engines for a lot of the stadium guys and everything. And he built my engines and he was kind of running my 
off-road car at that time and and um some of my road racing stuff with the can-am car and we were talking to him at Cranden when we were run, running there and we were talking about 96 what are we gonna do for that and then he was just like you know i know the guys at van beeman and let's just build a, an f2000 car so we pretty much ordered one of those and started that series to get into running the the SECA Pro Series, F2000 Series all across the country for 96 and 97, which was kind of cool because like all the guys that I knew from the Dodge Shelby can cars, they made that same transition at the same time. <laughs> so, so you're racing the same people. Yeah, racing the same guys and everything. And we, but that, that series was crazy because there was like 60 cars would start that race. <laughs> I mean, there was a lot of them. I mean, they they had like a group A and a group B, and everything was it was pretty pretty insane. I mean, but what, yeah. What 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 was the what was the draw for you that in that? I mean, you, you go from a, an ATV where you're there's no cage, there's no nothing, there's nothing to protect you, to a 1600 stadium car. That from what I'm told because I got to help Marty Hart a little with his car. They're kind of hard. They were kind of hard to drive. Yeah, they're, well, the 1600 cars, I mean, they're, you know, it's it's a rear engine car, you know, and you got the gearbox, you have all that weight in the rear and the front end, you know, it's like a doom buggy. <laughs> it's super right. light in the front and then you have all this weight in the back. So, Going to the driving school and racing those cars helped me out a lot in how to handle and drive that car. So when you say it's when that Marty said it's a difficult car to drive, to me it was actually a very easy car to drive really? because you have, a, you have the you know the turning brake and everything. And just driving a road car, you know, you have to plan for your turns and everything. How to how to enter a turn come around the turn and then exit the turn, you know, and carry the speed momentum. So I adapted all of that in my style in driving the 1600 car. And once I was able to adapt that, it changed dramatically for me in competition wise. Cause once we went to Montreal first time or that last year in Mickey's last couple of years, actually Mickey, you know, I was running more up in front and everything. But then when the pace series came up, came around and everything, I won like the three years that they ran the championships in that series. And I raced against like, you know, Jerry Welchel and all the guys that ran Mickey's as well and everything. And I was the guy to beat in that series. And it was just, oh, <laughs> hold on. <laughs> Computers went to sleep there and sleep, sleep up. But, uh, but like Jerry, like, um, so I say with, with the pace series, we had the car that, that was the car to beat. Me, my driving style adapted to that. And it was just a fun car to drive. And I guess, you know, when it's fun, it's easy, <laughs> so to say. So the driving school helped change not only your asphalt abilities, but it brought your dirt abilities to a whole new level. Yeah, to hold for me, yeah, it was a whole new level and everything. It's just understanding how to corner, I mean, understanding the 
fundamentals of breaking and and uh, getting on and off the throttle and and shifting and everything. You know, it's just because it, it, granted in the off road car there's room for slop or there is going to be slop. You're dealing with like you have this much room for error, whereas right. in the individual car you only have that that much room for error. So if right. you can your skills in, the, in an open car, but you know, this small room of error, this window and, and slop in the off road car is going to narrow down to here. So, you, you know, the little slop you have, you're, you're closing that in more and everything. So, right. just, my mental thinking was just to perfect it as, as best as can be. But there's also some other things I did too with, with, uh, with my stadium card that I did different from or what I've learned over the years and everything. So like, I mean, like the pay series, we build a new car for that series over the one I had in Mickey's, which we had totally modified and adapted and changed things to make a really good fast car. Actually, I think I ran that car for the first year of the pay series and won the championships. So the second year we build a new car, a complete new car with all the changes that we made to it. But from my knowledge from open wheel racing, I adapted it to my new car, like gearing, gearing things, engine stuff, and you know, the Toyota engines. They're at that time eight thousand, nine thousand dollar engine. Mine was far more than that, <laughs> 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 because I mean, even to this day, I still don't want to say what we were doing, but I mean, basically, it's the same engine that they run in a Toyota Atlantic engine. You know, the difference was a 1600 off-road engine ran maybe 8,000 RPMs, 7,500. You know, you probably don't want to hit eight too many times, but Toyota Atlantic engine runs up to 13 grand. So, but there's more internal parts that allow it to do that. That's pretty cool stuff right there. And we built that car super light and everything to where we even had to add weight to it. I mean, Which one, is, one, isn't it better to have to add weight than it is to have to take take it out somehow? So that's how come, like when you, like I said, when that front end is, is real light in there, then we could add weight to the front to disperse it more. Right. Because we're underweight, we'll put it in the front so it'll bite, corner, and brake better. That's so, that's awesome. And one of the, you know, in, in, the, in the gearbox, I mean, those those are basically modified, super modified. At that time in the '90s, they're super modified Volkswagen gearboxes, either with a little bigger ring and pinion and stuff. I mean, why do you need four gears when you're running a stadium? You know, that you can only go maybe 60 miles an hour. So you just yeah. need like second. So like so like in in Indy when you qualify, they don't do it now because it, it's different, but like in the early days of Indies, of Indy, they only ran like three years of those cars for qualifying. Even though they're like six, seven years in there and everything, but they only run three. And they only run three because that's a lot of weight. One, it's weight when you get rid of all the gears, and two, it's a lot of weight to spin and everything. All those extra gears that you're not going to use because you're just going to run one top gear for your qualifying run out of Indy. So you don't need the other five years in that stack. So right. they only two years in it. So the cars are geared to, you know, to do like 230, 235 miles an hour 
for four laps. So all you need a gear is take off. So your normal gear would be like a like a pit stop gear, which would be like a 90 mile an hour gear. But they would put like a 120 mile an hour gear and then 180 mile an hour gear and then your running gear. So like that's like whenever you, if you watch some of the old tapes at India qualifying, when they leave in the, the pit box, they're like, take it out of the out of out of the you know the, the tiny box to get on right. the truck. Because they're they're just it's too tall of a gear, but they just need to get out there and get in the in the running gear. And when you go in when you go in that second gear, it's like like a 8,000, 9,000 RPMs, then it shifted another gear and it's like, <laughs> so that's like, that's like they always say they have to keep it flat all the way around in the warm up laps going down the track, maybe 20 mile an hour gust wind and then cold tires and everything. And you have to go flat your first laps all the way out to build momentum and everything to get into that top gear before you take the checkered flag or I mean the green flag for your first four laps. How scary is it to go over 200 miles an hour? You know, it's actually, so I, so, so after the 2000 cars, I ran Indy light cars, you know, at, in, the, in the cart series. So we would run those, those cars at 200 miles an hour at Fontana in Michigan Speedway and a couple other, I think one other track, but Jumping in the Indy car at Indianapolis, going like two thirty and, and over, or just driving more over. You know, the car—they're difficult and challenging to drive, but they're harder to drive at one hundred eighty miles an hour than they are at two hundred twenty miles an hour, <laughs> because the way the car is built and designed to handle the geometrically and the suspension on it, you got heavier springs on it to withhold. 3,500 pounds of downforce and those wings don't really come into effect until 180 miles an hour. So when you got a car that's spring rated for going 230 miles an hour and with 3,500 pounds of downforce because of the wings, no, it's a heavy car. No, right. But when you're going 150, 180, the wings are not working 100%. So you don't have that 3,500 pounds of downforce on it. You have probably maybe 2,000 pounds of downforce. So the car is a lot stiffer. So because it's stiffer, it's bouncing around, sliding around. You're chasing the steering wheel a little bit and everything. So so when they do the rookie test, you have to hold it for like 10 laps between 180 and 190. <laughs> they have different phases in there. So it's harder to do that at the slower speeds. But when you get higher over 200 to 215, that everything you know gets all bounded up, you know, in the turns, it leans in the geometry, and you know the the camera, the, the tires are going down straightaway like this in a, in a you know negative and positive camber, you know, leaning to the left. But then you get a turn, they kind of pull upright and everything. That so, that, that that's so cool. So that's I mean it's, it's the the trick I mean the the trick of the whole game on a mobile is, is to make the car think it's going straight. <laughs> you know you gotta manipulate it to make it think it's going straight to the turn. To to maintain the speed, correct? Yeah, because if it, in, and because a lot of physics, you know, you, you can't really go straight, but you gotta try and make it think that it's going straight. You know, then that's like the ideal setup in a, in a way that you know. 
just everything because if you have too much caster or too much camber one way or another you know you're gonna be scrubbing speed and slowing down so it's just fine finding that ideal spot so that's that's like number two when you go to a track or you watch them in practice you always see like the firestone or goodyear guys whether it's a cup race or a nascar race or just a local track whoever the tire supplier you always see them like taking tire temperatures because they want to see one the tire wear and, and see see where how the car is set up a lot of the, a lot of the engineers i mean the teams do it themselves too because you want to even tire temp across the board or as close as possible because of the camber and the casters like this so you're riding on the on the tippy toes of the tire so as you're maturing it rolls more over then it spreads the heat all the way across so the inside is always going to be hotter than the outside because you spend more time on it during the straightaway and then you you can't in the turns you can't take all of that pressure off the inside yeah no it will always still be hotter in the, in the inside but then as that tire rolls over in the turn and everything then the center and the outside will get hotter and everything so that's how that's how they could tell where you got a good tire balance on, on temperature by, when you by is it, because the more heat only across that just means you know it's more more grip that you're getting if it's too cold on the outside then it's not you know it's not creating that lot of friction so it's not you got more tire to use was it hard to be able to um give your engineers or the the people in your pits the information they needed to set the car uh, or were they pretty on top of it being able to make adjustments off of tire temp and what they were seeing the car do on the track. Yeah. So they, so these cars, I mean, they have full, like in the Indy car, they have full telemetry. I mean, they, they know everything, <laughs> they know everything that's going on in that car. I mean, how much brake pressure you're doing, where you're braking on the track and how much steering input they got like strain gauges on the, on the push on the rods and everything on the suspension rods. So they know, where there's bumps, I mean, everything, even, even aerodynamic, they know like all that is sensors throughout the whole car, but they still, you, they still rely on, on the driver. I mean, you have to be able to come back and tell them everything what's going on. I mean, like for a practice, for a practice outing or whatever, I mean, you go out, you get like one out lap and you run like one or two laps and come right back in and to tell, whether that change or the, that they do to the car, whether it helped or not. I mean, that's pretty much how quick you have to know about it to feel feel things out on these cars. Wow, that they didn't give they don't give you much time to adapt to a, an adjustment, do they? No, because they you know there there's so many things they they want to do and change. I mean, they can look at the computer and have a good idea of what I might say, but. Ultimately, I mean, it's it's the old school rule of thumb. It's kind of like, what's your assay? Yeah. <laughs> you, can you go out there and go flat around this turn or anything? And they're like, yeah, I'm kind of like right here. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go flat, but I'm like, oh, I got to lift. He's like, well, why are you lifting? Is your ass telling you to lift or the car is doing something? You kind of like, kind of dissect it from there. So. Well, yeah, you, you're. Are you lifting because you're afraid of, of it because you feel that it's not going to ha- stick or is it not sticking? Yeah. Or is it not sticking because it's the car is acting weird or something or, you know, 
do we need to change like a tow out in the rear end or something like that or tow in you know just for what it feels or you know the last thing they wanted and you can always correct a, an issue by putting more downforce but then that creates more drag and slows down the car so they want to do it all by suspension and, and alignment on the car that's just that's just awesome technological advancements that uh the, the layman or the most people watching it don't get to see or or even talk about one of the questions i have is you see the cars on tv you they're shiny they're beautiful are they really that clean and nice or are they like some of the cars where when you take the body off they're they're cool but they're not as cool as you think yeah they're they're pretty spot on like spotless i mean they they're super clean and everything i mean they I mean, they show up at the track it's like a brand new car i mean every one of those you i mean whether you're driving a penske or chip ganassi or just that you know team that shows up you know if you only afford a couple of races a year or you know has a lower budget or everything those cars are like immaculate. I mean, they're like I said, they're brand new from the minute they show up at a track, and hopefully they go back home brand new still. <laughs> Otherwise, <Hopefully. they'll... laughs> so when one of them hits the wall, there's nothing reusable. Uh, for the most part, I mean, it depends on what track, but yeah, like Indianapolis, you could destroy a car there in a crash. I mean. As long as it doesn't destroy the tub, they can reuse the tub. But like all the siding and everything, if it hits one side, it just everything on that side's gone. It may break like the the bell housing on the on the engine and the transmission there. But when you see the one the one uh, crashes where the car just disintegrates, nothing's done. <laughs> Man. I don't know what you could pull off of that because I mean they're built to disperse energy like that. I mean that's what protects the driver. It's just the energy being thrown out of the car because otherwise it was solid and just you know right into you. Right. Did, did you ever crash one? Yeah, I had a well Indy Lights <laughs> car I had crashes. Indy car I had a crash at, at Atlanta Motor Speedway. Um, it was like a 13 car power up. You know, the car was fine. We all walked out of, out of that one. Um, Indy, I did, I did spin and crash there my rookie year. But um, I was lucky. I came out of turn one, spun around. I think what happened, I feel what happened. I mean, they got cross three. That's it's a tricky turn there at, at Indianapolis, turn one. Not sure if it just psychs you out because you enter the turn, but you can't see the exit because of all the grandstands goes around it. But then when also between the grandstands, like halfway through the grandstands, there's like a break about this down where like a break between the, the top grandstands. So the wind comes blowing through there like a top through like a tunnel. So when you enter the turn, there's no wind, but when you get right in the middle of the turn, there's, there's, you might get a headwind if it's coming from that direction. So that, dis that disrupts the car, correct? Disrupts the car. That's going to be why I see a lot of crashes there in turn one. Now they say turn three is identical as turn one, but 
turn three is an easy flat out turn. You go flat on that turn all day, but they say it's identical turn, identical degrees, everything to the dimension identical. Only thing is you don't have a tunnel of grandstands going around it. So it's more like psychological, <laughs> but you also don't have that, that wind tunnel going through, you know, cause the stands block the wind. And, and if there's a, if it's a windy day, you get like, you know, like a, like a hair dryer or hair dryer dry going through there, which will disrupt the balance of the car. Cause you know, you got no downforce. So you got, your normal downforce on the wing on the front end of the car, but the minute it hits that gust of wind, it takes the downforce away or or it adds some of it and pins the front end down. And then if the car's on the edge, it will just lose out right there. That's kind of me. But I was lucky because I didn't hit the wall. <laughs> I kind of kept it off the wall. I spun all the way around, missed the outside wall, but I did a 360 and went into the short shoot. But I hit that short shoot wall inside the wall. Just spot on the nose, just like perfect. I mean, it's almost like you got this trash can right here. It's almost like I hit it like this. If this is the, the nose of the car, my nose looked like this afterwards, which is flat. If this was like a point, like right here, it, uh -huh. just, it showed it in and actually inverted here to where the nose was like coming out this way. It was really weird. It was like my engineers and everyone's like, well, you pretty much hit that dead on straight and everything. But I came in at an angle like that. I didn't go straight into it. I just came in at an angle, bump, and then bounce off of it. But it was pretty funny <laughs> looking at it. I mean, but me, it was kind of those moments like, woo, that was close. Where did you continue racing or did that end your day? No, we, we continued racing. We just put a new front wing on it. I mean, they quick, they had four quick disconnects and take the nose off and the new wing went back on, went back out there. But that's, that's uh, pretty awesome stuff. I, I had a crash. I mean, you know, when you when you lose control of the car, you kind of know what's going to happen, even though it's like a split second. Um, you know the crash is going to happen, and you're like, you know that, you're, ah, this is going to hurt. <laughs> or you know that, okay, it's just like, oh, no, how are we going to save it and everything? But it's when you don't know when it, when it happens, that's the ones that you kind of like, that makes you weary because there's something break on the car or you did uh, something that usually something breaks or you might have hit a bump that you didn't know about. And that happened to me at, at Homestead in Miami. I just got the car flat around the whole track. I mean, it was a difference from being at the know, end of the top 10 mid midway like fifth through tenth quickest to where you're just breathing a throttle going into turn one in to be flat all the way around the track on a stopwatch that's about a tenth of a second or just over a tenth of a second difference if you're flat all the way around but when you're doing like 190 miles an hour on a, on a one and a quarter mile oval to get flatter on that, I mean, it's Miami Homestead was seven degrees or nine degree um, banking around it. I mean, it was pretty much flat. I mean, it was like very little banking around it, a track. They changed it over the years because of NASCAR, but at that time, it was very flat. And I just got 
the car set up enough to where I go flat all the way around. So I went from like being like 50 temp clickers to like second fastest on the track. You know, we got the car like dialed in for it. Came in and made one change. I think they just lower the car like one flat is what they call it. Because uh, like, like on a tie rod and everything, you know, a tie rod, you adjust it in and adjust it out. So they got the same thing for riding the, the ride height. The rods that go down to to lower the front and rear. But they call it, like, when they make an adjustment, because, you know, like on, on a nut, it has like eight side or whatever the size of the, the deal of a nut. Eight side or six sides on that? It's six. <laughs> Six. Okay, so there's six. There's six flats is what it is. So like when the flat just means the flat side of flat side of the nut right here. Mm-hmm. So this rotated like one flat to like right there, and that's that will lower the car down. And, and, and you're only talking about like thousands of an inch. You know, very small, very small change. Right. I actually think we went uh, we went two flats on the you know, not a complete rotation of the tire rod or, or the rod itself. But we went down two flats and everything. Get by this weekend, and I'll do my best. <laughs> I think we end up finishing like fifth, whatever that one or no, the year after. But but no, that that year I hit that wall there, and we just kind of <laughs> destroyed the whole car and everything. Scared you know, the, the shit out of you, huh? For the most part, because you know, like I said, most of the times you know you're going to crash. You, you know it, and. You brace it. That time, I did not know it. I broke my knee. Um, yeah, just I broke broke my knee or one of the bones in my knee and everything. And I still raced the next day. <laughs> they they um, built a whole new car went overnight and everything. And I raced the next day with a broken knee, but I don't think I finished that well that race. <laughs> wow, that. <laughs> Is it is it that hard to to rebuild a car, or do you have enough parts in the trailer to to do a second car? Um, most of the time, you have you have a car that's pretty much partially together. Um, it's when you tub a car, the the main tub of the car, that's when it's it takes all night to build. I mean, the crew was there. I mean, they didn't sleep at all that night. I mean, it took them all night to to build a whole new car. I mean, <laughs> they have all the parts, you know, all the parts there. The the teams, other teams will all give you parts if they if you need it, and and then the car supplier, they're they're always there with like trailers of, of parts and everything. So the and the engine guys, they're always there if you need engine stuff and everything. Wow, that's so crazy when. When you stopped racing ATVs, did you have any idea that Indy cars were in your future? So, like I said, it's something I've always wanted to do since I was a kid. It was just, you know, the kid's dream and everything. You know, kind of, kind of, kind of like, kind of like your your opening on your your podcasting. You know, like your dreams and stuff. You know, when I was racing quads, it was something I've always looked or had in the back of mind as, as a childhood dream. And racing the off-road cars, and e- even when I ran the Formula 2000 cars and even when I ran the Indy Light cars, at that point, I never even thought I ever, ever raced the Indianapolis 500. 
you know, I, you know, it was a goal and a dream. Yeah, I was aiming that right direction, but I didn't think it would ever happen. I mean, even then. So, like, when I was racing quads and everything, all that stuff like we just talked about, I was like, I never even think that was in the, the off-road car. That wasn't really in my plan. It was like indie, but it was like kind of like, what, what's the realistic of that? You know, the reality of that happening. So, I mean, it, it was, you know, it's that day when I qualified for that race, it was like a pinching moment. I mean, I was like going, holy shit, I'm actually doing the 500. I mean, it just, it was one of those amazing feelings ever and everything. And then, then, then I guess now being older and being away from it, and like you said, with the ATVs, me being back involved with this, you know, seeing what's been going on over the last 30 years and putting a, a reunion together with a bunch of our first generation guys. Um, and then preparing to, to talk to you and everything, writing all that stuff down, what I've accomplished or just thinking back and everything. I kind of was pinching myself again and everything kind of like, I've actually done a lot. <laughs> or when people ask me yourself, you know, like, what have you raced? And I sit there and think about this. Like, God, I've raced like everything <laughs> at some point in time. Cause I raced sprint cars. I raced some sports cars. I mean, I've, I've done a lot. <laughs> yeah. Cause I seen the picture of the sprint car. And I was thinking, wow, that's, that's not only did I show, I, I was driving yesterday and I don't even know how Instagram popped up on my phone. And I said, I, I showed my daughter, Hey, that's the guy I'm going to be talking to tomorrow. And you were, it was an IndyCar picture. <laughs> and she was looking at thinking ATVs. That's not an ATV, <laughs> you know? She didn't put the two, you know, the, the the two and two together that you were an ATV guy that has transitioned into a, a whole nother world. Yeah, no, I mean, even even I'm not sure what issue. Even after I after I ran Indy in my rookie year and everything, Steve Casper put a picture of me in one of the magazines back then. He did like a little little clipping of, of me in in that. I'm not sure which one it was that he was with at that time, but. But he, I he think put, I remember. I think I remember that. Yeah, he put like a little clipping in there, like Corey Weatherall, uh, the first or only ATV racer to go to Indianapolis. So the, the the ironic, crazy thing about that. So so we all know about like like Ascot Park, you know, JC right. the name Agajania is a huge name at the Speedway. Yeah, and they built that track with Ascot in the 60s, 50s, 60s, or, or something like I that. Think it in the, I think it was built in the 50s. Yeah, so the 50s, 60s, 70s, up to the 80s, you know, they ran dirt tracks, you know, midgets, sprint cars, everything. And especially in the 50s and 60s and 70s of IndyCar, I mean, you were a dirt track driver that went to Indianapolis. I mean, I, I don't even know, but I can't imagine how many drivers went from Ascot Park to race Indy 500 that same year or whatever, because well, there's a different time for IndyCar before I started putting wings and everything on the, on these cars, you know, carbon fiber tubs and stuff, or chassis. But my funny story is that it's like, you know, the guys that go to Indy from Ascot race dirt track. <laughs> right. I, I, 
motocrosser that went from Ascot to 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 the Indy 500. But it also goes to the other funny thing about that story too is that through my years in the 90s making that transition over and stuff, you know, I, I got to know Carrie Agajanian, which is JC's son and everything. And he owns motorsports management and he ended up representing me in like 2000. It was like my manager and everything in 2001 and everything. So, so it was just for me kind of like, oh no, I started, started at JC Agajanian's Ascot Park and then now his son is my manager and his, so his team of, of representatives or, or agents or what do you want to call them was representing me. And then now you're not Indy. That's so, un- unbelievable. So it was kind of cool and everything, but ah, did 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 your parents get to see you drive Indy? Yeah, so my parents have been around my whole career. You know, um, I was I was adopted. I mean, I'm, I'm a, the youngest one of like ten kids in my family, and so because I'm you know, younger than everybody, there's nine other siblings ahead of me my parents were mid 50s i think when i first started racing maybe like later 50s so my mom and dad they passed away in 09 and and 13 so yeah so they they were around throughout my whole career so there's only there's only two races that they didn't go to and that was the race that I broke my forearm at the national in in, in, uh, in Florida, that my parents said, "Okay, after that race, we're going to all your races," and they did, or at least one of them would go. All of them can. And my brother races, or races. My brother does a longboard competition. He's a very good surfer, and um, I. I we raced at Kansas Speedway. And then was it Kansas? Yeah, Kansas. And that track was on 4th of July weekend. And it was like probably 105 degrees. I mean, super hot. <laughs> and the next year, we went back to that same track at the same time, 4th of July weekend. And my parents said, we're not going to that race. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, sorry to say this, but we're not going to go that race. We're going to go down to San Diego and watch your brother surf in the competition down there. <laughs> and so, so they they ended up going down to San Diego to I think Del Mar or something. That it was some big, big long pro longboard competition down there or something like that. <laughs> but those are the only two. Right- <laughs> that, that that was a much nicer, a much nicer place to be than yeah. uh, 105 in, in Kansas. <laughs> so but yeah no they, they were a big part of it they were heavily involved you know like i said earlier um didn't come from a, a racing family any sort of racing background they kind of learned as i went on and and um just you know one one of the things that i learned early on in racing was from uh, Brian Fry when, when I first met him, you know, when he, he kind of pretty much mentored me and he, he taught me everything about ATV racing. He taught me, you know, how to pull the whole shot, you know, the techniques of pulling the whole shot and doing it correctly and what to look for and what to watch. Um, 
Tommy, do the doubles at Blythe. I don't know if you've ever been there during the Cal Fleming race, but those doubles are huge. I mean, my first year in 87, I mean, I was like the only amateur doing the doubles because Brian taught me how to do them and told me what to do. <laughs> and, um, you know, so so talking to him and, and working with him over, over the, 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 the my earlier years, um, he told me simple things. You know, if you really wanted grace and be competitive, you could have nice stuff, but you need to get championship winning stuff if you want to take it serious to that next level and everything. And you have to surround yourself with the best people, you know, in the industry, like the best engine builders, best suppliers, best, you know, everything that's going to make you a better rider or, or race car driver. You know, you need to know all the right people, you know, you need to know all the other top teams that you're competing against other mechanics or riders and just everyone. And because of him, I mean, I became friends with like Denton and Andrew Buck and Alan Knowles and, you know, Jeff Watts and Jim Putman. It was a whole bunch of guys, all the first gen guys. I mean, that was kind of like, like my crowd. I mean, you know, like I was saying before, I mean, I'm putting a little get together together and some of these, like I said, some of these guys I haven't talked to in 10 years. Some of them I haven't talked to in 30 years or since back then. And you know, I send like Sean Finley a message like, "Hey, I don't know if you remember me and everything." Um, Quinn Gary, this little reunion out of a few of us there. What are you interested? And he's like, "They like, did <laughs> totally remember you. And I watched your whole career. I saw you at Indy and everything." You know, same thing with like Jeff Watts. He's like, "You took my uh, you took my quad back to Loretta's. I totally remember you." <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was like, oh, "Okay, cool." <laughs> I was like, "I wasn't forgotten or something." <laughs> No, you were uh, definitely not forgotten. Well, I mean, because like I said, I was I was short-lived. I mean, I had that injury and everything. I was there. I mean, I was at out. I was raced every week in some place. Um, I'm not a first-gen guy, but I started at that same time. Cause I mean, I was a young 15-year-old then, but I was around all those guys and looking at the magazines of them when I was like you know, 12 years old, 10 years old, wanting to be, you know, a Jimmy White or uh, or Donnie Banks and and um and it just uh you know when I started I got to know got to know them at that time and everything. You know, I guess I ended in nineties, so I guess I am an eighties ATV writer. <laughs> you are. You are. So, I mean, uh, it, it, Corey it, sorry about that. Go ahead. I was just saying it, it's it's cool that uh, you know I got to know all those guys. So like I said, from Brian and, and Brian just you know mentoring mentoring me and, and hooking me up and this thing was you know you just gotta surround yourself around around the right people and everything and and get to know them. So with that little bit of his knowledge to me and everything, I just carry that all the way through my racing career. I mean, I was talking to him like. We've been friends on social media for a long time, but we haven't met up really until like a couple of years ago, a few years ago and everything during COVID. <laughs> you know, I right. went over there. Actually, he contacted me about about his bike because uh, he had a, he still has his 87 bike and everything. And he saw online that I had a bunch of them and I was buying some. And he was like, hey, you know, my bike's sitting in my grandma's house. <laughs> for the last, whatever, 10, 15 years and everything. He's like, you're interested in wanting it? I'm like, 
your 87 bike? He's like, yeah, I still have it. And I was like, yeah, I'll take it. So I have his bike in there. Like, but That's so awesome. Elaborate a little bit on the get together and uh, when you think it's going to be so that we can get the information out or I can help you get the information out to some of the guys in that era. Well, I got a, I got a really good, so it's funny because like, like I was just saying, you know, my, you know, cause of Brian, I got to know a lot of these guys from back then in my race all, all around. Um, the, the get together just basically started with Brian and I, you know, meeting that one day, talking and everything and me going out and buying, picking up his quad from him and buying it from him. And, uh, and just chatting here and there, um, we have another good mutual friend. I don't know if you remember him or not, uh, John Sarna. He ran quad in the 80s. Name super familiar. He, he ran quads like 88, 80s, 80, 89. And then he went to, uh, with um, Tim Baker and, then, and himself, they ran a two-car super light team. You know, thinking 89, 90. I think he got a quads out of 88, yeah. He was, I think, only like two years or three years racing quads. And uh, then he ran a super light, a super light team throughout Mickey's until they folded. But, um, but yeah, so John, John lives out in the desert, in Palm Desert area, Palm Springs, I think. And uh, he's been working out here, so... I told Brian, you know, because the three of us were like good friends back then. I told Brian, hey, John's out here and everything. Let's uh, get together and, and have dinner or something. And so we've been trying to do that for the last like three years. <laughs> it yeah. just has out. So in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, like, well, it'll be kind of cool, you know, get a few other guys together, you know, maybe, you know, I could call Andrew Buck or whatever or get like Alan from CT and Denton and everything, you know, I'd still still talk to them. Get like you know, a few of us. So like right before the holidays, um Rick Rupert was in in LA for the Chargers game because he's from San Diego. And I met him over here by me in Hermosa Beach after the game and everything. And I was talking to him and telling him that, yeah, you know, Brian and John and I were planning to get together and have dinner. He's like, hey, count me in. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know for sure. You could come in there. And he's like, then he was like, oh, you know, you should try to invite a couple other people in there. And he's like, yeah, you know, that's what I was thinking. You know, it'd be kind of cool. I've been wanting to see me get a reunion. He's like, let's start it. <laughs> I'm like, all right, maybe, you know, I'm, I'm still in contact with a lot of the guys or at least on Facebook or social media. And I'm sure those guys have a way for me to get in contact with the other guys that I haven't talked to in 30 years or maybe only met a couple times and like some of the older guys and everything. And it just kind of snowballed from there. And then, you know, it just needed that kick in the ass to go do it or, or to start it. So meeting, I guess, Rick Rupert that night kicked me in the ass to put that ball rolling, so to say. That next Monday morning, or next Sunday, yeah, it was Monday, Sunday next. Yeah, so Monday morning, I just sent out a text and message to the guys that I, I know that I have their numbers. So, yeah, I'm going to put together a reunion and everything. You want to do it? You know, Brian Fry, 
Rick Rupert, John Sarna, and I, we're going to go. Goes, yeah, count, count me in. <laughs> Denton texted me back. He's like, yeah, I'll, I'll meet you guys there. Then I sent one to Alan and Andrew Bug. Yeah, I'll do it. And then I was looking on Instagram. You know, Shannon Smith was on. When I saw that she, she was on there and everything, or she was posting something. And I just, I'm going to send her a message. Hey, Shannon, I'm putting together this thing. She's like, oh, that's so awesome, man. I love you. And I was like, all right, now I'm going to count like everybody. So I caught it like 15 people that first day and everything within like three days, I got a hundred percent feedback. I'm in, I'm in, when is it? Where is it? I'm like, I haven't gotten that far yet. <laughs> <laughs> and then White got back to me. He said, he's in, and I knew he's out of town. And I'm like, Hey, so are you going to be in LA anytime soon or anything? He's like, well, I'll be in LA for Anaheim one. And then sometime early March for tax season and everything. I was like, all right, well, that's my date. You're going to be out here. You're the first person that got back to me that's from out of state. <laughs> um, that's when I'm going to do it. As I don't know the date, I got to find a location, a place that can host us and everything. And uh, so we'll, we'll do it in March. So since that first day to now, got guys coming from Georgia, Tennessee, Texas, Arizona, Idaho, you know, Colorado. <laughs> And they're they're all they're all all in and everything. So I mean, I got I got like a I mean a list of everybody. Everyone, I mean, only who's not coming to it are the people who have not really contacted me back yet. <laughs> it's only because and it's probably two or three that have not gotten back to me. So, but everybody else, they all got back to me. They're like, I'm in. Tell me when. Tell me when and where. Well, you better make sure you get me the information so that I can post it for the guys that that you haven't got a hold of. And um, I talked to Brian, and I definitely want to cover it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, like, like I said, I mean, you know, I was talking to like Jimmy White. You know, he's giving me contacts for a lot of guys and everything, and and kind of drawing my memory on a few few people that I might have missed or forgotten, and and you know. Donnie Banks called me the other day and he's just, he was like, he's telling me what days he's available for it and everything. So, so we kind of got tentatively a mutual date when he can come out and, and um, Jimmy White will be out here. So, and they, they've been good help as far as giving me like contacts, you know, numbers, because like I said, some of these guys I haven't talked to in like 20 years, 15 years. <laughs> right. Right. But, our stadium series was running there when I was around the ones that were around. And, but for the most part, I mean, it's been pretty easy, easy to find. I think Jim Puppin was the hardest one for me to find because everyone's like, no, I don't have his. No, I don't have his. I haven't heard. I haven't heard from him in years. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't heard from him probably since shortly after the pace stuff, but no, but one of the, one of the guys, um, I just reached out to had had his contact and everything and and um gave it to me and he and he ran it by Jim and he was like, dude, I'm in for sure. So I text him and say, Hey, it's Corey. And he's like, dude, I'm in. So that's awesome. It's gonna be fun. I mean, it, it's you know, who was I was talking to? I think it mentioned to Jimmy White and everything. He's like rambled off a couple other names and everything. Then he texted me back and he's like, or are those guys too young? I was like, those guys are more 90s. I was like, I don't know the 90s guys. 
unless they started when I started and continued on, you know, like a Mark Earhart or those type of deals. But because I don't know, he's like, they're too young. And then I text them back. He's like, it's like, I'm doing the, the AATVA nationals. I was like, actually, I'm doing the, I'm doing the Vet Pro 50 plus AARP national reunion is what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. RP card to qualify to come to this. <laughs> uh, I don't have an AAR, AARP card, but I can get one. <laughs> uh, yeah, just, how old are you? Uh, I just turned 51. I got so, you by a few years. Yeah. So, so, but, but it's just, you know, it's just like, you know, it, it's, they've had other reunions or get togethers over the years or some sort of, some sort of deal, but of just mix of everybody. But, I mean, I don't know. I just kind of like think of like the first generation guys would be kind of cool. I, you know, I, I totally not, agree. Other people or they're not excluding them because there's a lot of talent out there, a lot of fun, but I mean, when I was talking to Eric Cobb and he was telling me that you should have came out for for the web of sale, you know, a couple months ago and everything. He's like, all your buddies, all your friends are out there. You know, I was thinking of you. I'm like, he's like, yeah, I, I, I was, I wanted to. I don't even think the only reason why I didn't because I had my son with me that weekend. But, um. How old's your son? Uh, he's 13. He's 13. He wouldn't have enjoyed it? Uh, no, he probably would have. <laughs> he probably he, he would have. It just it would just been a little probably more. Uh, <laughs> the the invitational race they had was incredible. It was just super cold. Yeah, I watched it. I think I watched it online or something, or I was watching some parts that like, you were posting. I think over the time or something like that. I was, my son actually, my son met up with my youngest and, and I in, in Vegas and he had never used Instagram. Oh yeah. <laughs> she, she gave him like a five minute course on Instagram and the way we laid out the coverage for the race, he got the obstacle section and he had the only device that had power. Oh, yeah. We were running out of juice on everything. And the device he had still had battery. So he got to do all the live stream. And he's not even an Instagram. He didn't even know how to use it. You know? Earlier that day, he learned. And yeah, he did great. It, was, it, it, turned out, it turned out really awesome. I was, we were super stoked with the way the coverage was, the 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 people that came out and raced and the the fan base was ex- super excited. It, it was a good deal. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, I mean that. You know, after I saw that, I was like, man, I should have gone out there and checked it out and everything. But it, it's funny because, like, so like the guys who I reached out, some of them reached, got you know, called me or texted me or things like. Is this what is what? Tell me more about this get together. Are, are we racing? Are we are we, uh, are we um, doing some sort of competition thing? I was like, oh no, no, it's a happy hour because I have a list and I sent them a list of who who the people were in. But I broke it down. But I was like, okay, this is heat one and this is heat two, and 
Terry Varner got back to me. He's like, uh, put me down for an LCQ. So I wrote down LCQ, Terry Varner. <laughs> so anyway, I think people thought we I was like doing like a race or something. Like that. No, it's not a race. It's like, it's like, it's like, um, I don't think most of the guys have quads or can race or anything. But surprisingly, a lot of them were like, yeah, I'll bring my dirt bike. I'll bring this and that. And, you know, <laughs> but. I haven't seen Terry Varner since the national in 86 in Washington. Oh, really? Yep. Yeah. I, I probably haven't seen them probably like, oh, early nineties, probably last time. You know, I just, in the last couple of years, I think I became friends with them on Facebook again. And, and we just exchanged, exchanged numbers or um, messages back and forth. Because when I, like, so when I first started, how I met Brian was, um, it was a race at Ascot, and I blew an engine. And so, well, who's new? I didn't know what the hell I was doing and everything. But uh, he came over because we were parked right next to him and kind of like, what's going on? What happened? And everything I told him, he's like, dude, I got parts in my car and everything, my van that keeps running tonight. I was like, really? So he basically rebuilt my top end and everything and got me racing that night. So that, that's kind of like how we met. And that's what started our, our whole friendship. And going back to like what I was saying, you know, surrounding yourself around the best, he told me, he's like, dude, you got a good bike here, but you got a stock engine. If you want a really good, good engine, I was like, take this card and call this guy. And it was like Varner's card and everything. He's like, I'll call him tonight and tell him that you might give him a call and everything. And, and he'll, he'll build you a really nice bike or a really nice engine. You know, he does all my engines. He does Danton's engines. You know, he, he's he's your guy and everything. So, called him that next day and everything, and went over to his house. And Danton's bike was actually right there. And um, I brought my bike over there and everything. And he's like, you know, you got a really good bike. You know, you'll win a lot of races, but if you want to win championships, you just slap the seat. He's like, got to build one of these. <laughs> You know, my dad was with me and everything, and and I looked at him. My dad's guy shrugged his shoulders, like, okay. And I was like, all right, let's build one. And so he, you know, Varner built me a bike. And ever since he built all my bikes for me every year for that, actually. So, I mean, I ran Varner engines until my last race. That's pretty awesome stuff right there. Yeah. Corey, I want to thank you so much for your time to come and talk with us here at ATV Talk. Um, you know, we we get to talk to a lot of people in the industry in, in different walks of life. And you've had an extreme racing career from ATVs to the 1600 cars to Indy cars. And all of us that have, that knew of you in the ATV world did watch your career um, and, and watched you in Indy. And so it, it's a pleasure and an honor to have you on the show. And, and I just want to say thank you so much and make sure you keep in contact with us so that we can get you, uh, get you covered for the reunion with all the eighties guys. Yeah, no, I appreciate it, man. That's, that's, you know, I'm stoked to hear you say that right there, Mary, because, you know, just especially now doing this, this reunion thing, I'm saying thank you first, Jen. Well, I'm not, I don't have the credits like they do in the three wheel ATV world and everything. My only credit was that I got fastest qualifying at the LA Coliseum in 89. <laughs> you know, I, I beat John Henry by one hundredth of a second to get fastest qualifier. <laughs> I remember that I remember 
day, perfect to this day, after qualifying, I'm sitting in my motorhome right there, minding my own business, and Eric Cobb and his dad, Steve Cobb, come knocking on my door, like, dude, congratulations. I'm like, for what? He's like, for qualifying. I'm like, what about it? <laughs> They're like, dude, they posted qualifying times. They're like, you got fastest qualifier. I'm like, what? No. <laughs> so... But I mean, I was like, really? I said, I felt fast. I didn't feel I was that fast. But that's the usual thing in racing. When it feels slow, that's when you're hauling ass. Right. When, when, when you're ahead of the bike instead of chasing the bike or chasing the car, that's when, when everything just slows down and then you just got that rhythm and everything. Exactly. But no, it, it's awesome, to, like I said, for you to say that and everything because you know, I love the sport. I mean, I wish things would, you know, grow in the sport or be more noticeable and, and recognized and everything. And, and especially now in the last, like I said, last few years of me just like collecting some of these bikes and, and wanting to ride. I got a little Polaris 90s for my son, so I'm going to get him out, start riding on it and everything. That's awesome stuff right there, brother. Um, as always, I want to extend an invitation to have you come back on the show. There's so many things about your career that we probably haven't covered. And I want to invite you back to, to go over those at a later date. Um, and then again, at the reunion, we'll, we'll talk some more as well. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm available anytime. That, that'd be awesome. The team here at ATV Talk would love your feedback. Please email us at hello at ATVTalkPodcast.com. San Diego's Body Evolution and Wellness Center. With over 17 years experience, Dr. Heidi looking out after all your chiropractic needs and Coach PJ looking out after all your fitness needs. Visit our website, www.bodyevolution.org or call for an appointment, 619-987-8875. If you're in need of a consultation for your current racing program, a custom ATV, or an industry guest speaker, I have the company for you. Duncan Technologies International Inc. offers host, MC, and guest speaking services at events. Builds custom ATVs for recreational riding or racing around the world. And they offer consulting services for professional teams or individual racers. Send inquiries to Duncan Tech International at gmail.com or call 619-716-1532 for more information. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, don't forget to share us with your family and friends. The podcast is available on all streaming platforms and you can find us on social media as ATV Talk Podcast. We're on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, Rumble, and Twitter. 